This morning, we come to the parable of the Good Samaritan that Josh has just read, and doubtless, uh, or hopefully, you are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's quite well known, but like a lot of Christ's parables, the setup is very important. The setup is, uh, is, is especially important here. Um, what you have is a, a lawyer stands up and asks Jesus publicly this question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as is often the case, it's a bit of a setup, um, of a setup. <laughs> it is, um, it's not really a good faith question. Because as we all know, uh, an inheritance isn't something you, you do to get. You, you receive an inheritance because of who you are. So there's a category mistake in the question. So Jesus doesn't take it maybe as seriously as he might. He doesn't take the bait. Instead, he fires back a question at this lawyer. He says, well, what's written in the law? What do you find in Moses? What do you read there? The lawyer revealing that he knows the answer to the question he asked, says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's it. You got it. Go and do it. Go and you will live. He's quoting, he's referencing Deuteronomy there. But... Wanting to justify himself, the lawyer presses Jesus. He says, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You see, this lawyer is like a, a lot of us, uh, but especially he reminds me of sort of a, a teenager who wants to know exactly how far the bounds of sympathy should be extended. Uh, he's less interested, in fact, in who he should love and, and that, rather than who he's allowed not to love. <laughs> what can I get away with, Jesus? That is the question. Uh, that is what he's asking. And Christ responds by telling this whammy of a parable that confirms none of what this guy wants to hear. Now, there are a few different figures in the parable of the Good Samaritan, so let's, let's talk about them. The first is the man in the ditch. This man has been robbed and beaten, left for dead, apparently. He has been attacked. Life has, has punched him in the gut. Out of nowhere, he finds himself helpless and hurt and in need of outside aid. He is the target of overwhelming greed and malevolence and aggression. Now, maybe you cannot identify with that level of attack, but maybe you can. Our offices are filled with people telling us stories that are not unlike this. They may not involve physical harm, but out of the blue, your job is taken from you. A car hits you, and all of a sudden you can't walk right. You lose someone very close to you, or simply someone just leaves. Life is full of what feels like a, a, a assault. And sometimes adult life feels like a continual assault on your sense of control. Now, have you ever found yourself in the ditch? 
having been ambushed, hijacked by some sort of circumstance that no one could have seen coming, and you cannot extricate yourself? Well, I hope you haven't, but probably you have. And if you haven't, then you certainly know someone who has. Okay, well, that's the man in the ditch. Secondly, you have the Levite and the priest. These are two religious figures, uh, and they see a man in need. And what do they do? They cross to the other side of the street. Can you relate to this? I mean, the priest would do this because the man is presumably bloodied, and he doesn't want to get unclean, sully himself. He's, in fact, using religious reasons to justify selfishness. I don't think that's that arcane of a motivation, using religious reasons or simply moral reasons not to sully yourself. Have you ever found yourself telling your child to, 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 to be quiet? I'm doing something very important right now. I can't help you. Or simply passing by someone who's in need on the side of the road because you've got to get to the hospital. There's someone else. There's some higher calling that I need to fulfill that gives me a, 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 a justification for taking the long road around the person in front of me. But it doesn't have to be some kind of dramatic man-in-the-ditch situation. Who is it in your life that you avoid? Whose number goes straight to voicemail? It's all, all of us have someone. It's not just, oh, I, I don't want to give money to the panhandler because I don't want to support a drug habit, though that's, you certainly people have that sort of tape in their head. Uh, all of us construct various fortresses, physical or otherwise, in order to avoid those we'd rather not have to deal with. Usually it's the wrong sort of people, the wrong sort of people, whoever that may be. Our country is simply filled to the brim these days with the wrong kind of people, is it not? Those types, that I just can't, it's the us versus them. It's those who get it and those who don't, and those who are part of the problem and those who are part of the solution. There's the wrong type of people. It's just that the hats keep changing. In fact, hats is funny because this morning after I preached at the 745, someone walked out and says, I like what you had to say, but, you know, I still, I just am never going to engage with people who wear backwards hats. I said, well, that's honest, I guess. Uh, maybe they don't want to engage with you. Um, he said, putting on his hat backwards. Um, but whose uh, who's, who's calls are you dodging? Where are you looking for an excuse not to care about some situation? Now, funnily enough, or at least uncomfortably enough, Jesus brings the word neighbor into this. And so does the law brings the word neighbor into it. And it can be how many times have you seen people that exude compassion about everyone in the world except for the person who lives right next door? Or they're the neighbor in their bed, or that down the hall. I don't know who it is, but I know that neighbors are both wonderful, they're a blessing and a curse. You know, after we have rain like we had the other day, like where I am in the city, it's at seven inches, like, in, like that. And all of a sudden, you're talking to your neighbors. You know, did you get flooded? Is there anything I can do to help? There's an elderly person over there. Maybe we can go and check on them and all that. That's wonderful. And yet, neighbors are also those that we hold resentments against. Won't they ever clean up their driveway? He drives so fast down this road, I hope he gets in an accident. 
You know, um, that their, their, their renovation never seems to end. Don't they have any concept of the noise it makes? Can you relate at all? I mean, there's usually one person on the street who is like the pariah. They, they, they don't know it, or sometimes they do, but I was, my brother John told me once he went to an AA meeting in, um, in Charleston, South Carolina, and he got there, and it was much smaller than he thought it would be. It was eight people, and everyone looked very buttoned up, and he thought, oh, gosh, this isn't going to be a very good meeting, and I don't feel super anonymous, and then the first guy got up, and he gave this lead, which is the lead speech, and he talked about his own problems with addiction, that he realized he had a serious problem with alcohol the night that he found himself on his roof holding a rifle pointing it at his neighbor's dog ready to pull the trigger and we thought oh my gosh John thought that, that's insane I can't believe that that would be that you would have something and then two other men sitting of the eight raised their hands and said I have done the exact same thing you can't make this up now, sometimes it's not the animal that you're, you're trying to upset your neighbor in some way. But these grudges hold up. You know, the, tr the truth is neighbors are the ones that we get and have uh, shouting matches with or cold wars with, standoffs with, uh, because they are the ones who are more likely to see us with our makeup off, with our hair down. They're the ones who overhear us yelling at our children or at our spouse. The truth is, it's much easier to love someone you don't know very well. Someone across town, or across the sea, or some glamorized group of people that you don't actually have to engage with. Loving someone who, with whose foibles you are well acquainted is much more difficult. In fact, the person who is right in front of you is usually the least lovable because you know so much about them. Am I, am I right? I think I'm right about this. So it's no uh, coincidence. The love of one's neighbor is not easy. It's extremely hard. And it's not just a, a, sort of a care for one's neighbor. What does the Samaritan do? Because that's the third figure in this story or the fourth figure. The Samaritan, who is an ethnic and religious outcast, the definition of the wrong sort of people, it would have been against the law to have had sort of this kind of relationship with a Samaritan. They were the result of intermix between Jews and Gentiles, and it was you were not allowed to associate with them. Well, the Samaritan comes to this beaten man and the man in the ditch, and he he shows him kindness and mercy, but extravagantly so. He pours wine and oil on the man's wounds. He binds them up. He brings them to an inn. He pays the bill, and then he says, leave the tab open. Whatever this guy needs, I am here to pay for it. Now, this kind of super abundant love, if you are intimidated by it, you should be. That's Christ's intent. And yet, as is so often the case in God's world, salvation comes from the one place we dare not look. So to the lawyer who wants to constrict love of one's neighbor, Jesus says, I'm going to expand it. I'm going to expand it beyond the bounds of your racial ethnic categories. And I'm going to expound it beyond the bounds of good sense and responsibility. I am going to not just, you don't just give someone a ride to the hospital, you give them your car. That's the sort of love of the Good Samaritan here. 
It's outrageous. It's so outrageous, it seems engineered to get the hearer to relinquish our pretenses of heroism and perhaps see ourselves as the person in need of help, as the man in the ditch. We are just as much, if that's the standard of goodness, of holiness, moral rectitude, well then you know what, I am in the ditch as well. But by the way, what, before I close, what, what, what do you think makes the Samaritan capable of this kind of love? This kind of spontaneous, sacrificial, unconditional, foolish love. The sort of love, by the way, that would make the world a whole lot nicer of a place to live. To say nothing about my own street. <laughs> well, think about it in your own life. Everyone has a sort of a heart for different types of people, I think, most of the time. Maybe you know a couple who's had trouble conceiving. Well, they, they want to reach out in kind to other couples who are struggling with infertility, for example. Maybe you know someone who's lost a child and all of a sudden you see that happening, you read about it and you want to help. You want to be there. Maybe you see someone struggling with an addiction that your husband struggled with or you yourself are dealing with. Well, instead of judging that person, you want to reach out in love and friendship. Someone that you see yourself in. The Samaritan shows the man in the ditch mercy because he has been there himself. He is an outcast. He's not morally superior. He's not possessing of stronger willpower. The Samaritan can sympathize with people who have been treated poorly because the Samaritan has been treated poorly. In other words, the good Samaritan is the man in the ditch. So if we want to see an increase in Samaritan-like activity in our world, well then perhaps we get in touch with the ditches of our own lives. Because that's not only where we will find concern for others. It turns out that's where God meets you and I. God loves us like the good Samaritan loves the man in the ditch because he himself was in the ditch, beaten, abandoned, sucker punched, desperate alone, hung on a cross, the victim of the harshest form of human malevolence imaginable. This is why we trust the love of God. The good shepherd is the good Samaritan. And no wonder the ultimate authority on neighborliness himself, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers once said, all of us at some time or other need help. That's one of the things that connects us as neighbors. And so, as my friend and now colleague Sam Bush writes, it is our great and glorious surprise that God is not a distant master dwelling in a mansion, but God is a nosy neighbor, the one who is always there, even when we wish he weren't, the one who sees us with our makeup off, our hair down, who hears the children crying and hears us shouting at them. And yet, this same God is the one who's not put off by all that unsamaritan-like behavior. He is the one rescuing half-dead, avoidant neighbors on all sides of the road 
who knows much more about us than we'd like to think, and yet even still invites himself in, sits down, dwells among us, pays the cost, and leaves the tab open. Amen.